0: Hi, I'm Greg Schaefer, and welcome to the virtual CISO Moment. Recently, I had the opportunity to speak at the Bankers Bank of the West Information Security for Community Institutions Conference in Denver, Colorado. I spoke on quantitative information security risk assessments for small and mid-sized banks and credit unions, one of my favorite topics. Take a look. Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, Pleasure to be here and to talk about one of my favorite topics. I know it Risk assessments can sometimes seem to be a little bit uh, unexciting, a thing that you have to do because it's mandated by regulations or by some security standard, but a good risk assessment is a necessary tool, particularly for the executives and the board of directors, in order to do what? To make risk-informed decisions. So over the years, um, I've come to realize, I grew up, if you will, through IT, through networking, which is more about making things work, more about operational stuff. And the idea of like risk and risk assessment seemed to be just some stuff that unfortunately I had to do and I didn't really get too much out of it. But over the years I've learned that this is probably one of the greatest tools in information security. Because as you all know, resources are not, are not unlimited. We'd like that if they were, but You have to be very efficient with your resources, and you need to understand where you're going to put your resources because you can't fix everything. And this is why we're here today. It's a very simple question, a very simple answer. The risk assessments that we typically do don't provide an answer to cyber risk cost exposure. It'll tell you relative what's a higher risk than another, but when you get that question about well, okay, that's a high risk, and then what does that mean as far as uh, numbers and dollars? Because that's really what upper management, executive teams, and the board want to know. It's very difficult to answer that because, really, the qualitative assessments that we do don't have that baked in. I mean, there are ways to estimate. You've got um, different um, – we, we've heard about the the the, the per-record cost of a – breach for PII might be like, say, I think the number we heard yesterday was $250 per record when you put all that together, but that's based on historical um, evidence. And um, But there's a lot of things in information security that we just don't have that uh, information for. A little bit about me, this is about the same that I talked about yesterday, so I'll just run through it quickly. I've been in information security and IT for about 30 years now, been in the CISO role for several organizations. Um, in higher ed and eventually in banking when all was said and done. That was First Bank's CISO over in Nashville uh, for about a little less than six years. And then I got the calling to become an independent to help small and mid-sized businesses with their information security posture. I feel that that's a huge gap that's out there. talked about this yesterday, but um, they really don't have the... um, I don't know why this is increasing. It must be... I'm going to put that down. Um, they don't have the, uh, the, uh, uh, the expertise, if you will, to, uh, uh, in, to, to be able to afford an in-house CISO. So anyway, this is what I do. I've been, uh, f- I founded vCISO Services in 2017 uh, in order to um, basically fill that gap. So we need to understand, first of all, about what a risk assessment is. This is from Wikipedia, so I'm not going to read it. But in pragmatic terms, a risk assessment is just simply looking at the threats and vulnerabilities that you have in your environment and trying to figure out what, where you need to apply your resources in order to mitigate them. So you need to understand the risk, you need to identify it um, before understanding, but then you need to understand Relatively speaking, which one is higher than the other? Again, it gets to the resources. And in this sense, then we're able to make risk-informed judgments, risk-informed decisions. Because otherwise, if you don't do a risk assessment, you're just sort of shooting blind. You you hear about the greatest, most recent tool out there, a black box that can secure your network. No such thing exists. And if you ever hear a vendor say that they've got something that'll do that, it, it's never going to happen. because. Uh, security. I must have a timer on this. I apologize. I don't know why it keeps going up, um, but uh, you, you just you there. You, you don't you don't have um, a black box out there that can fix something, so you you need to understand where you're going to put your resources. So that's what a risk assessment does. It's a very simple um, matrix uh, methodology. This is based on a five scale, so likelihood um, and impact. So likelihood is basically an estimate of what is the chance that something is actually going to happen with regards to um, a vulnerability being exploited. Some organizations will do a scale from one to three, some from one to five. I've seen one to nine. I typically will use that, Um, and it's just an estimation. It's a It's a representation of the subject matter expert's opinion of how likely this is going to happen. And then, of course, the impact as well, too. So the impact being on the bottom, again, the same scale, 1 to 5. And you multiply the two together, and you get what you call your inherent risk. This is probably review for most, if not all of you. This is your typical heat map. And so it gives you basically three values. The low risk is green. The middle risk is yellow. The high risk is red. You can take it a step further if you want and even vary the colors based on, um, it makes it look a little bit more granular, so maybe something's like not quite as high risk as something else, and that's good. Because qualitative risk assessments are a very useful tool, and they're actually, in my opinion, a necessary tool as an input for quantitative risk assessments. But you're still putting, you're, you're multiplying numbers together, but this is fake math. I mean, what are you actually measuring here? you're not measuring anything there's it's it's a it's a the impact is a three what well it's a three because I think it's a three not because of anything else Um, that's the subjective opinion of the subject matter expert there's there you're not that's why sometimes I see some risk assessments and they've got all these different calculations in them and all these different numbers and so forth but it really turns out to be fake math this is an example of what we call a risk register. You've probably seen these before. This is just a uh, made-up example for the sake of today, Uh, where we're looking at um, core, the particular risk, the threat of an account takeover and loss of funds. So we're using a nine scale here, so from zero to nine for likelihood and impact. We've determined that Without any mitigating controls in place, if you just had your core out there open and there were no mitigating controls in place, no, not even a username and password, uh, your likelihood that somebody's gonna, going to exploit that is pretty high. It's about as high as it can be. And the impact to the bank is going to be just as high as well, too. So we're going to start out with an inherent risk of 81 here. That's good. And it's like, okay, we understand we need to do some things. And we do do some things. We do a lot of things here. We talk about... Um, in this area here, this column here, the limited access to administrative functions, bolded multi-factor authentication for a reason, but in this particular example, we have that in place for all of our accounts, Um, security reviews, real-time backups, and so on and so forth. And we've determined that our controls are pretty darn effective. And again, this is math, but it's kind of fake math in a way, but it's still math. We have what we call a mitigation effectiveness factor, so an MEF From 0 to 1, the lower it is, the more effective you are rating your controls here. And so we've rated this probably just about as effective as you can. You can't give it a 0 because there's no such thing as an indefinite amount of risk treatment. There's always going to be some risk left over. We've assigned it a 0.2, and that gives us a residual risk of 16.2, which on our risk scale, our heat map scale, is going to fall in the low range. So it started out as a red man, you've got that green. Rainbow colors. I mean, it's nice. It's a nice way to introduce, to talk about risk. But again, it's not... I I often struggled with this as a CISO myself too in trying to explain just what does that mean when a risk is is red. Well, let's look at the same... um, the same risk here, the same item, but the only difference is, is that we don't have any multi-factor authentication. Of course, if you don't have multi-factor authentication, we heard about that a little bit this morning with the business email compromise, the phishing emails that is a, um, certainly a much, much used vector in for um, fraud. The panel yesterday, the uh, Secret Service and the FBI talked about that and about how multi-factor authentication effectively mitigates that quite well. Here we don't have it in place, and therefore we've come to the realization that our mitigation effectiveness factor is not 0.2 as it was before, it's 0.7, which then gives us a 56.7, which again on our little scale here is now going to be just about in the high to severe range. So that's bad, and we know that's bad. And we know we need to fix it. But how can we make that decision? And what I mean here is, like, let's just take some numbers out of thin air, um, estimates, uh, that in order to enable multi-factor authentication for all the accounts on CORE, it's going to cost $40,000 a year. Are you mitigating a $40,000 risk? Can you tell from this what the dollar value is here? I mean, I can't. I know it's high. There's a lot of factors that go into that. There's... Uh, you know, uh, just from num- the size of the assets that are in core. That's where the quantitative assist- assessment is going to come into play. This is the problem again with the qualitative is that it's all relative. So high risk may mean different exposures to different organizations. We've already talked about that somewhat during this conference as well too. About how, um, well I talked about it yesterday from the bank's perspective as far as the cybersecurity assessment tool. There are different maturity levels, um, and we'll step on that in just a moment, based on the, uh, r- the, the aspects of the bank, the financial institution. Um, and we did certainly need to have some sort of a methodology in order to bake that in. And that's where the cybersecurity assessment tool came into play. And uh, that was released a few years ago, and um, as I mentioned yesterday, it is a Word document that then there were, um, there, was a, there was a push within the FSISX Community Institution Council where several of us, myself included, we were uh, developing spreadsheets to try to figure out how to meet compliance of, and use the CAT. Um, and we came to the realization that we're all doing something separate here in a silo. And maybe if we combine our efforts together, we could then create some sort of a tool that could benefit everybody. And that's what we ended up doing. And so the cybersecurity assessment tool, automated tool, that's a mouthful. I think I just took out a couple of the words there because I was running out of room, uh, was developed. So this is a snapshot of, of the first part of the CAT, the spreadsheet tool. And here is where you're determining your inherent risk as far as the bank's um, attributes, characteristics. So several different things. Here we're talking about, um, it looks like, wireless network access. And one other thing here, as far as devices go. So you look at the size of the network. You look at the size of the deposits. You look at the uh, services that are offered. And you end up with a, from a scale of one to five, again, notice we're not measuring anything here, but we're just using numbers, um, of where that bank's maturity level should be as far as information security controls are concerned. This is a representation of that. Um, in essence, you've got on one side the, what is, what is um, the maturity for the, each of the domains. I'll talk about that in a second. And then the inherent risk levels, which is what we just figured out. Again, it's almost like the same multiplying the math together. It looks a little bit familiar. Um, if you have a one and a one together, so if you determine that you are the least um, uh, uh, least of the inherent risk because of the small size of your institution, then you end up being around baseline and you only have to institute certain controls according to the CAT. So the CAT has. I'm going to say it's close to 500, not quite, but it's 400-and-some-odd controls in it. But um, the controls past it, uh, your your preferred maturity level, you don't necessarily need to meet. You, you certainly would want to try, and you would want to track those. But where this gives us some kind of quantitative measure is that now we're, at the very least, um, doing the risk assessment where we're taking into account really our institution. So again, I talk about First Bank. First Bank uh, it was at the time when I was there a $4.5 billion um, community institution. Some of the things that might be applicable to a Bank of America wouldn't apply to us. The return on investment would be really not worth it. But now we're talking, again, relative levels. We're still not in the point of numbers yet. This is what The control side is, uh, just an example of the other part of the cat, and I mentioned the 400 plus controls, you have the option of answering yes or no or not applicable, and I think there's another version out here now that actually you can put in what they call compensating controls. So you might not actually meet that one control there, but you've got other things in place that really, when you're doing an audit or you're trying to meet a standard, you're not necessarily needing to have the specific control in place that's mandated by an auditor or what have you. You just need to make sure that you're mitigating the particular risk. And that's what compensating controls really do. So you might not have the main one in place, but you've got three or four that mitigate the risk down. And then you get to the end, you you get this nice little chart that says, hey, well, this is great. Um, We need to reach baseline on all of our domains. And we have now, when we did our assessment, we've reached baseline. So now we've got a risk assessment, which is beyond the original risk register, which just talked about a high, medium, and low. We've got something that is more applicable to our financial institution. But as I said before, it has a lot of numbers in it and a lot of calculations with it. But it's still kind of fake math because you're not measuring anything. And so what if I told you you can assess information security risk in terms of dollars? You can, and that's the whole point of what we're talking about today. The Factor Analysis of Information Risk or FAIR. So this is from the FAIR Institute's website. I'm not going to read it. But what it is, is a methodology for incorporating more than just subjective opinions of subject matter experts. You can actually input meaningful data. A lot of it is subjective, but this is the best, most complete standard that's out there today to incorporate actual real data. And when you do this, you end up with what we call a cost exposure. And it's an annualized number that can answer that question, well, okay, if two-factor authentication costs 40000 what's our exposure? Is it less or is it more? And that's where the whole key is here, where it will inform you on making that risk-informed decision about do we need to spend the money for it. Now I'm going to caution up front, this is not going to be a instructional exercise on how to use FAIR. FAIR is a very complicated methodology and you can't cover it in 15 or 20 minutes. But what what I do want to do is just expose you to the concept of it with the hopes that um, maybe this is something that you can use at your institution. So, uh, there are certifications out there uh, to be uh, to test, I guess you could say how um, how uh, you are you are able to take the the model and actually apply it, and I would encourage that if you step down that path to think about the certification. but again, this isn't about you can't go down that. There, there are courses that take weeks in order to get to that point. But the whole thing about FAIR is now, we're, we are risk professionals in information security, and I am an evangelist about this. There's too many instances out there still where the idea of information security is a technical thing, and that's just simply not true. There is no such thing as a tactical technical CISO, because if that's what a CISO does, they're a CISO in name only. A chief information security officer and information security in general, the function, is a second-line risk management function. It is not a first-line IT function, and the more that we can understand that, the better we can secure our organizations. So me, as a risk professional, it's my job to be able to translate the technology risks and the other risks in information security to executive management to be able to explain this is why this is a high risk. Before FAIR, if I was asked in a board meeting or by the CEO about the dollar exposure of that example, there's no way I could answer it. I have no idea what the exposure is if we don't have multi-factor authentication for our core accounts. I would just be making something up. Now, at the very least, I've got a tool that will help me fulfill my mission of being that translator between the controls and the business risk. This is FAIR. This is the FAIR model. And I'm gonna spend a few minutes going through this. I'll probably have to flip back to this slide. Um, it all starts with risk up on top. Now, FAIR defines risk as cost exposure it might look a little familiar to what we've already talked about as far as risk go for the qualitative assessment, where you've got a loss event frequency and a loss magnitude. You multiply those two things together and you get the risk. Okay, so that kind of sounds a little bit like what? Likelihood and impact, right? Yes, there's a lot of similarity there, at least in the beginning. It's the inputs that go into the loss event frequency and the loss magnitude that are important. So, Let's start on the left-hand side first. For loss of frequency, that breaks out into two different parts, threat event frequency and vulnerability. The threat event frequency is essentially just that. It is how often do you think that this threat event that you're analyzing with this model is, is impacting your system? So that could be a subjective opinion. Well, I think that we maybe five times a year. Or it can be based on real-time data from your logs, your SIM, your firewall, your other, if you have user and endpoint behavioral analytics in there. You've got tools that you can actually measure. You've got log reports. If you're um, in AWS, you've got guard duty reports, for example. So you've got some stuff that you can bake into this. And you might be able to bake it in even a little bit more granular. So you You recognize that just because we have a guard duty alert or we've got a scan, does that necessarily mean that that's a bad actor trying to get in? Maybe, maybe not so there's this concept of whoops there's this concept of um, contact frequency and probability of action, so contact frequency how often do you see? This threat actor hitting your firewall is a very simple example. And you can measure that. You can get that from your data, from your systems. But when you, when you look at, say, you've had 100 of those instances in a month, how many of those actually seem to lead to an actual um, attempted intrusion into your network as opposed to background internet noise? It might be 5%, 10%, something like that. That's the probability of action. The chance that the threat actor is actually going to do something with that vulnerability that they're trying to exploit. Now on the other side we have vulnerability. And vulnerability, we talk about vulnerability as being um, something that can be exploited and then that becomes a risk. But you can distill it down a little bit further. And this is where it gets really interesting as far as being able to measure the effectiveness of controls. Two important concepts here. The first is the threat capability. So you've got your bad actors out there. Um, Different actors have different threat capabilities. Your script kiddies are those who are just running something that they downloaded. What's their skill level? It's probably pretty low. And this is a percentage here. So you might say that, okay, the threat capability of the one scenario that you're running, which is um, just somebody scanning your network, they probably have a pretty low, you know, maybe, um, if you were going to look at the whole spectrum of hackers out there, or let me just instead of hacker, let me say cyber criminals, because a hacker doesn't mean that they're a criminal. You look at the whole spectrum of cyber criminals out there, maybe they fall in the the 20 to 30% range. So there are like there are 70 to 80% of the cyber criminals out there have a much higher skill set and then the other side is this concept of resistance strength resistance strength is an essentially without going into details is another word for controls now this is important because i stated in the beginning that a, quant- a qualitative risk assessment is important for performing a quantitative risk assessment. And this is where they meet up right here. So that risk register we had beforehand, that was our estimation of how effective our controls are for all these different threats that we were looking at. So without the multi-factor authentication, our resistance strength wasn't all that high, was it? Because the control was not all that effective. Vulnerability in the terms of the FAIR taxonomy is defined as, as whether or not your resistance strength can overf- overcome the threat capability. So, again, these are measured in percentages as well, too. So let's just say the threat capability, mm, the, we always do a low, medium, and high. When we step through the tool, you'll see that. But let's just say, or rather low, most likely, and high. Let's just say the most likely is 25%, but our resistance strength is 75%. Well, at this point in time, the analysis is done because you have determined that your threat, your, your controls are more effective than their threat capability for the scenario that you're examining. If it's the other way around, then you're going to figure out the cost exposure. Let's go to the other side here. And if you have any questions, just stop in the middle of this, but, but I just want to show you the, the layout first and then we're gonna step through an actual model of, of a, what we call a, a threat condition, a threat, a threat environment. Loss magnitude, so you have primary and secondary loss. Primary is pretty easy to wrap your head around. It's those things that typically, typically FAIR defines, I believe, six or seven different types of losses. And two of those, for the most part, are primary. So the loss of funds, for example, that would be a primary loss. Damage to the infrastructure, that's a primary loss right there. Secondary loss would be, um, in the secondary risk, is items like fines and judgments would be one, for example, or um, lawsuits, or um, other uh, the response to... um, provide credit monitoring because of a PII breach. I like to use the example here. It's not so much in the finance world, but I think it's one of the best examples out there right now on how to illustrate this, and that's with the GDPR, the the General Data Protection Regulation for the European Union, which in essence is a privacy regulation. I'm sure you've all heard about it. We've got kind of GDPR-like coming in California starting next year. Um, The GDPR, there's this there's this really hyped statement that says um, you can be fined up to 4% of your annual gross revenue for an incident, and, or um, there's a minimum million uh, dollar figure as well, too, or um, I can't remember what that is, but let's just go with the 4% right now, um, As of January of this year, and I haven't looked at it since, there were over 59,000 instances of violations reported of the GDPR. None of them came close to invoking a fine that was 4% of the gross annual revenue of a company. And in fact, the largest one wasn't even a data breach at all. As a side note, it was how Google was using data. My point being here is that if you start with the idea that our GDPR risk, well, we have, we're a $100 million company, okay? And that means we have a $4 million exposure to the GDPR right off the bat. And that's per incident, by the way. That's wrong. You're, you're taking the extreme, and you're not taking into account the actual data out there. So this is where now we talk about loss event frequency and loss magnitude. So, that 4% of the GDPR, for example, that might be the lost magnitude. That is the most that could actually happen with regards to this sort of a fine. But how often is that going to happen? Well, data right now says that it's not going to happen. Um, so you might you might then be able to um, put in there a figure based on what we've seen as far as what the fine level has been and come up with a number which is substantially lower than 4 million And again, now these are numbers that are based on real values. So all of this now combined together will define risk in terms of cost exposure. FAIR is different than your typical cybersecurity assessment tool or your risk register in that each one of these analysis you have to do for a specific scenario. And in that sense, then what you want to limit using FAIR for are those risks that you have determined from your qualitative model to be the highest. Because uh, straight up, you cannot do this for every single risk that you have out there. You will not, it is too complicated, too time consuming. We recently finished a, an engagement with a firm. Um, that we ended up with, I believe, 15 risk scenarios based on five threat conditions, and I think the the highest risk one was the threat of in, the loss of intellectual property for this particular firm, and that took us, when all was said and done, three months to get to. Now, of course, we did a qualitative risk assessment first and a gap analysis um, for uh, along the ISO. Uh, standard 27,002, the controls. But my point being is that, you know, our risk register, when we were done with that, we had like about 75 different items in there. And it made no sense to do a fair analysis on all. We did a fair analysis on three of them, but using different threat actors out there. So we'll go back again here to the question of what does that 56.7 really mean as far as terms of dollars? So different types of risk, we may prevent hitting desired maturity level with regards to the cat. So that's compliance risk. may mean that accounts are exposed. There's some operational risk. Bad press. Certainly you don't want to be in the press when something happens, but it, you know, that's a reputational hit. And, of course, then the loss of funds. <coughs> but the fair approach now, we really start looking at the individual scenarios, as I was just mentioning a moment ago. So now we're going to actually, this is the meat and bones of the presentation, we're going to step through a particular example. And this scenario, we're looking at cyber criminals. It's the same scenario that we had up beforehand with regards to the risks that we have for not having multi-factor authentication for CORE. Um, the most likely threat actors out there are going to be cyber criminals. That are pro- Those are the ones we really got to worry about. So we build what we call... a a threat community profile first, and this is what this here, there's there's several different stages that you have to go through, so first of all, what's their motive, financial gain, and the Verizon data breach report mentioned that 71% of breaches were financially motivated, okay, so that makes sense, that's pretty large, the primary intent is to gain access to accounts for the purpose of stealing funds, we understand that, most likely the sponsorship, these aren't people just going out by themselves. They're, they're sponsored probably by some organization it could be a nation-state, could be criminal groups. The point being that they've got some backing, which is going to come into the determination about the threat capability that we talked about beforehand. Preferred targets are customers of financial institutions because they want to exfiltrate funds, and their preferred general tactics or is phishing and other variations of social engineering. Because remember, we're looking at the one scenario where we're trying to measure the whether or not that multi-factor authentication is worth the, um, the implementation. FAIR is, is based on assumptions and based on documentation of assumptions. Every assumption you make you need to document, because that becomes the defensibility point when you are asked where did you come up with this number? And so you'll see with fair that there's a lot of documentation we're, going, we're only touching on the top of it. But that's why we go through all this. Now we're going to step through this tool. yesterday i I showed a um, snippet of a graph that had. Um, two different uh, tracks on it: the current exposure and the proposed exposure based on whatever changes we were going to make. I'm going to step through how we actually come to this. This is a tool that is available from the Fair Institute. I'm sorry, from the Open Group, called the um, Open Fair Risk Analysis Tool. I believe that's the name of it. It is just a spreadsheet. It use, it's, uh, uses Monte Carlo simulations I believe it does a hundred um, to calculate using the fair methodology the cost exposure. Now, we've already stepped through the fair model beforehand, and that's whoops, and that's what's represented here in this little triangle up there. It's a little bit more um, condensed and what we're looking at right now is the loss of n-frequency. So the other sides we can ignore right now, and these are, if you remember, the elements that went into it. Now you might be thinking, well, I thought that there was some other stuff underneath here, and you're right. FAIR is the recommendation is that you, you run the analysis as close to the top as you can unless there's a reason to go down really, really far. So here, we realize that based on our firewall or our um, instances of um, having to reset passwords because people clicked on phishing links and gave up their passwords, for example, we could figure out the threat event frequency per year based on that. And so we've got two values here, current and proposed. I'm gonna hold them both at the same level Because this is not what we're measuring at this point in time. We're not measuring this change. So this threat event, these bad guys that are trying to get to us, most likely value is five per year, we've determined. So, Now on the vulnerability side, we do want to drill down a little bit further. That's why that little check marks are there. And now we've got these two, the threat capability and the resistance strength. It is the resistance strength that we're measuring. Remember, the resistance strength is about controls. And two-factor or multi-factor authentication is the control that we're measuring or that we're trying to figure out the cost exposure for not having it in place. And then what the cost exposure would be if it's in place. Now, again, not everything is quant- quantitative and fair, so these are estimates here. The first one here is the threat capability. Now, we determined those numbers based on our initial threat profile here. I didn't go through all the steps of it, but when we were said and done, because the sponsorship is criminal groups, they're going to be pretty high on the end right there. So the most likely value is that they're in the top 15% of cyber um, cyber criminal um, uh, skill set. The resistance strength is what we're measuring because the resistance strength, remember, is controls. So we've estimated that in our current environment, our most likely value, because we've got other things in place, we, you saw the... Um, The other controls we have in place with regards to mitigating the risk for the lack of the multi-factor authentication, we're not flying blind into this thing. So we say that the most likely value there is, you know, 70%. But if we had multi-factor authentication, maybe that goes up to 90% there. And notice one other thing that's happened here, too. The current, um, we're way below the threat capability right here as far as the resistance goes. So there's going to be a higher exposure. Here, we're getting pretty close to being... um, Above the threat capability, not completely, because our minimum is still less than the maximum here, but we're getting closer. Any questions so far yet? I mean, this is a lot of like words and stuff. I understand, but it's it really is cool how it all works out in the end. Loss magnitude. So this is the other side now. Notice now we've got that colored in there too. These are all the different losses that I talked about beforehand. So you got primary and secondary. Now notice that in primary, we've got um, basically the three that are not grayed out and then the other three down here are. The response kind of floats in between both primary and secondary. I prefer to keep it in secondary, quite honestly. Um, But you can measure it on both sides if you want. But for the purpose of this exercise, we're keeping it rather simple. We've determined that our primary losses are going to be two items here. Our productivity, first of all. You know, your your qualitative risk assessment doesn't really take into account how long does it take to recover. So while we're going through trying to figure out, you know, where money was lost and how to recover it, well, that's gonna take up some staff time here. So this is all in thousands of dollars. That's the I mean you can use different currencies, it's just whatever you assign to it. We assign thousands of dollars to it. So we're saying that a most likely value is like in order to recover funds based on this one threat scenario, maybe we're going to spend about $3,000 of uh, employee time, staff time trying to do it. So that's, that's really not that high, right? It's kind of baked into it, but you want to consider it as part of the overall cost exposure. It's the replacement that's the highest one here. So we can look at those few instances where because of business email compromise in our financial institution, what was the average loss on that? over the say you know, our historical time of like five years. So let's just say that the average loss, we determined it was $200,000. So we make that the most likely. And looking at some of the other data, well, we might have had one that was like a million, but, you know, some of them were kind of low, maybe $10,000, so not nearly as high. We hold these two constant because, again, we're measuring the resistance control in this particular scenario. So the proposed is the same as the current, leave it as is. Secondary loss magnitude. Remember what I was talking about as far as the GDPR example. How often if we have a breach and we have a loss of funds, or rather, if how often if we have a bad guy actually um, trying to get to the funds, do we actually lose the funds? So we estimate that based on historical data as well too. So maybe there were some instances where our um, fraud detection system worked, and um, I, I can't remember. I think for Jack, for Jack Henry, I think it was Yellowhammer or something like that. Does that sound familiar? Okay. I'm reaching back into my banking days. So, you know, I mean, I still do some banking stuff, but we work with all industries. Um, but let's just say that uh, Yellowhammer uh, stopped a good chunk of them, so we'll say like 75% of them. So that makes the most likely value that, that we're going to have secondary loss at 25% because if you just put in 100 there, it's going to skew the the, um, cost exposure, just as saying that 4% of your annualized revenue is your GDPR exposure. So now we're talking about some of the items here, too. So we've got response. So response would be um, maybe those items with regards to uh, um, secondary response. There could be, um, maybe it doesn't apply here, but that would be where you would put your, Um, your your, uh, monitoring and uh, maybe we we need to put in some different systems as well too. Reputation hit, that might be kind of minimal um, based on how big it is. These are numbers that really you would need to figure out based on your financial institution's history and also um, just understanding operations. I put these numbers in here just as placeholders. I really don't have a rationale behind them at this point in time. But I do have for judgments, because judgments is going to be pretty high here. You're going to have, um, in the case of a loss, most likely, um, people are going to sue sue the FI, and or the regulators are going to levy fines. That could very well happen down here, and it could be substantial. It could be a million dollars. So you want to put that in here. And again, the proposed, we're going to hold it, we're going to hold the proposed study, because we're measuring the resistance strength. That gives us this. This is your cost exposure. This is the whole reason why we did this. The most important thing to realize from this particular example is that our current exposure right now is no more than $2.5 million million based on not having multi-factor authentication in there. That's annualized. That does not mean that we're going to lose $2.6 million in a year. This is an exposure. FAIR is not a predictive model for determining what your actual loss is going to be in any given period of time. Now your proposed if we put those controls in place based on everything that suddenly drops to about a quarter of a million. So you're going from 2.6 to a quarter of a million. Now you have something that you can take to the board of directors and to the C suite and say our cost exposure right now we can reduce it by about 90% and this is how we got to this number that's what fair does that's what makes it so powerful it's complicated it takes a lot of time you need to understand what you're doing you need it's only as good as the inputs you put in some of the inputs are going to be qualitative some are going to be quantitative and then you can see it as far as a graph goes here. The, this is our, our the, the one up top is more about, um, so most likely in any sort of an event, um, about 70%, the loss is going to be less than $50,000 right here. And then it t- goes up further and further. I don't really like that graph because it doesn't tell the story too well. There's another uh, ticker that you can make it, you can see the number of events estimated per year. But this one down here is what really tells it. So this is your curve right here right now, as far as um, your loss exposure, and this is where the curve goes too. And so the tail here is like, um, the, well here, the, 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 the chance that you're going to lose uh, exceed 250,000 dollars right now, it's 94 percent if we don't do anything. So that 250 is going to be floating right about right in here. OK? Um, but your proposed then brings it down to about 28 percent right here. So um, other metrics are included in here as far as uh, notice, I mean, FAIR's not saying that your exposure is, that's the most likely value, but your exposure currently could be close to $8 million here. And whereas the maximum is a little bit more than two. So you could still suffer a big loss. Um, and that's something that you would need to make sure that you un- that you convey to the board of directors. It's like, well, you told us that we put this multi-factor. We weren't gonna lose any more than a quarter of a million and we just lost 1.5 million here. It's like, well, yeah. Um, It's not a prediction. This is all about, you know, determining the chance of something happening. Um, This is the analysis summary. Basically, we just talked all about it. Um, All of this is what I just mentioned beforehand, and now we've answered that question. So this high risk, that 56.7, means $2.6 million. Some things to consider with regards to fair before leaving here, and I think I've touched on all of these, but they're very much worth repeating. First and foremost, it's not a predictor of loss; never will be. You can never have. If if there is a tool out there that someone develops that will tell you exactly how much you're going to lose because of a particular vulnerability in a given year, buy it. I mean, it's like it's it's an impossible tool. It's like that black box on the network; it'll never exist. So I I say buy it, but once you've verified 100%. In other words, you can never get to that point. The assumptions, the more accurate assumptions equates to the more accurate analysis. I think it's pretty clear, just on that one simple example, how you can skew it pretty far if you don't have the right numbers in there. And again, when you put in the numbers, document, document, document where it came from. That's the defensibility here, too, as well. And then finally, the beauty about using this particular tool from the open group is that um, you can modify the inputs based on changes to your environment or the control environment or to the threat environment. For example, you might need to bump up the threat actor capability, the threat capability from what was the most likely value, I think we said 85. Maybe there's a release from the FBI that says something along the lines that um, makes you think, well, their threat capability is actually higher than that. And then your cost exposure is going to change. Now, that tool, you can all use. You can download it. Um, There is a 90-day beta evaluation license, but that really is more for folks like me as opposed to you. If, if you're using it for your own organization, it's unlimited. You don't have to pay a licensing fee for it whatsoever, so don't get kind of hung up on where they say about the uh, beta evaluation license. It's for folks like me that um, we have to pay the license. There's um, Since this is still fairly new, it came out about a year and a half ago, there's only... Um, well, the tool is new, but um, the uh, licensing is for not the tool, but for the use of the standard. Um, there's only 10 organizations right now worldwide that are licensed to, to use that standard in performing analysis for other organizations, and we're one of them. Now, I'm not going to pretend that that's you know, going to stay that way. That's going to change as more people realize that this is an effective tool that folks need to do need to use. And there's probably some folks out there that are using the tool in a similar capacity to how we're using it but are not licensed but that's not how we do business. This is the FAIR Institute. If you're interested in this, I would encourage you to join this and join it today. It's free. It's, there's no cost. And there is also a model, just like the spreadsheet in there, there's a model in here that you can use to teach yourself FAIR. That, this is how I taught myself. Before, In fact, that started before the spreadsheet even came out. Um, again, I can't use that for, for client work. Um, you could certainly use that in your institution as well, too. Um, FAIR, the, the evolution of the popularity of the standard really has um, been one of those curves that kind of like started out in like 2004 and then just recently has started to come up you're going to see this more and more. And if you can demonstrate that you're estimating loss based on a uh, standardized approach out there, you're going to win the arguments more often with your C-suite and with your board. So to end it, uh, I'm a big proponent of this process because I think that from a risk, pers- risk assessment perspective, remember, um, I like the idea of risk assessments because it is a tool for communicating risk this brings it to a whole new level. And I'm happy to talk about it you, um, after this or um, after the conference. These are uh, various um, contact links. We've got, um, we're on Twitter and we're on Facebook and LinkedIn and we've got a, I guess I don't have the YouTube up here. We do a, we do a video every uh, couple of weeks for small and mid-sized businesses. I'm gonna do one about the cat at some point in time, but I've done fair beforehand, so. Um, That's it, that's fair, that's quantitative risk analysis. Any questions?